You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, everyone. It's Stu here, your dulcet toned podcast host. Are you tired of ads interrupting your favourite true crime podcast, British Murders of course? I mean, who needs a 60 second detour when you're in the midst of an immensely well told story? The irony of this being an ad isn't lost on me, but I wanted to let you know that you can listen to British Murders completely ad free by signing up for a Patreon membership. For as little as £3 per month, you'll get early access to ad-free episodes, as well as a heap of other benefits. I've got a fair few bonus episodes you can sink your teeth into, and every Monday I drop a new episode of the British Murders Weekly Journal. If you enjoy exclusive giveaways, my Patreon has those too. Head to patreon.com slash britishmurders and choose either my OBE or KBE slash DBE tier to rid yourself of those pesky adverts. Plus, you'll be helping support your favourite podcast so that I can offer you even more content going forward. I'd say that I'll shut up now, but you've got the rest of the episode to listen to. Back to you, Stu. This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Birds, the True Cry Podcast. Right, I am here with Shaham Das. Welcome to the show. It's been uh, a couple of weeks trying to get this sorted, but issues have got in the way. Completely understandable, but we're here now. How the hell are you? I'm very well, thank you, Stuart. Yeah, good to see you. It's glad to have you on because I've been wanting you on for a while, just to pick your brain. We'll come on to why in a moment. I want to just first clarify, I've done some stalking on your website, okay? Which is what I always do. If my guest has a website, then that's it, you're done for. I noticed you've got quite a few abbreviations after your name, right? So I've I've tried to break them down. So let's see how I did. Okay. I mean, the first one I'll have to skip over. So the first one is MBCHB. I've no idea what that is. What's that? Uh, so that's a medical degree. That's uh, every doctor has to do. I think it stands for like a Bachelor of Medicine and Surgery. Right. So I should have introduced you as Dr. Shaham Das, right? Technically, yeah. But okay, it's all good. my bad. My bad. <laughs> my my mum would have been annoyed if you uh, didn't call me doctor. But <laughs> well, I'll, just, I'll, just, I'll just edit, 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 doctor <laughs> at the beginning. So BSc, Bachelor of Science. I've got one of them. I think, nice. from my, my failed uni days. MSc, I'm guessing that's a master's? Yep. Master's. And then MRC, psych. So I'm guessing that's some kind of doctorate in psychiatry? It's kind of. So it's membership to the Royal College of Psychiatrists. So every specialist okay. doctor has to eventually be, uh, like get a membership to a college. That is the proof that you're a specialist in an area. So yes, it minds the Royal College of Psychiatrists. Okay. So you're the first psychiatrist I've had on here. I've had a few psychologists. Now in my head, there's a, a rivalry between the two. I don't know where that's come from. I spoke to one psych- psychologist once and they said the main difference between psychiatrists and psychologists was that psychiatrists are able to prescribe medicine to their patients. So can you explain to me, a layman, the main difference between psychologists and psychiatrists? 
yeah, sure, no problem. So psychiatrists such as myself are medical doctors first, right? So that means that at some point we've learned all about, you know, anatomy, biochemistry. Um, I can't I can't promise that I went to all of my lectures at university, but at some point at some point I did go through all of those exams, forgotten it all because it was years ago. Uh, whereas psychologists only train in psychology, so in the motions of the mind. Psychiatrists, I guess, technically only deal with mental illness. So we deal with anything from depression to bipolar to schizophrenia, whereas psychologists can do that and, and they often do, but they can also deal with stuff that's emotional problems that's not mental illness, like grief, like you know, confidence building, sports psychology. So these aren't you know illnesses, you wouldn't go and see a doctor about those things. Uh, whereas a psychiatrist, as it, because they're a doctor first, they only really deal with disorders and diseases. We have more powers than psychologists in that we can prescribe, as you said. We can also section people, so I can detain people against their will under the Mental Health Act. Psychologists don't have the legal authority to do that. I think on a day-to-day basis, psychologists tend to have more time per patient. So they, they're the person that you sit down with on an hourly, uh, an hour a week typically and have your in-depth therapy. So they know you intimately, they know about your life, they catch up with you on a regular basis. Whereas psychiatrists realistically you probably see like once a month, once every two months, just like you might see a GP if you've got an ongoing disorder infrequently. Um, and in terms of the rivalry, yeah, I think that's fair. I think it depends where you work, right? So I've worked in medium secure units where there are psychiatrists and psychologists on the team when we're like looking after mentally disordered offenders uh, in some areas like child psychiatry, for example, it's a lot more psychology led because you don't want to medicate kids, right? Unless you have to. So there's more psychologists typically on the team than there are psychiatrists and other areas like um, liaison psychiatry, which is like, you know, suicide attempts, seeing people in A&E, there's hardly any, if any psychologists involved in that, it's just psychiatrists. So it kind of depends on the environment that you work in, the, the degree of the balance of the, of the two professions within the team and the degree of rivalry. So with the psychologist, right? So that's more your, like you say, a therapist, if you've got not necessarily a condition, but mental health, emotional concerns, I guess is how you put it. Would it, would the person who has to see a psychiatrist self-nominate or is it typically someone else doing it on their behalf? So if we're thinking from a legal side of things, so the people that you deal with, um, a lot of them have done sort of criminal acts, quite abhorrent things. Yeah. I'm assuming they've been referred to you by someone else. Do people ever self-nominate? Yeah. So it depends on the type of client you're seeing and the disorders they have. So if you have, if, if somebody has insight into their disorder, so if they've got something like anxiety, depression, maybe post-traumatic stress disorder, they know that they've got these illnesses. They probably want help. They will go through their GP or maybe a family member be referred to a psychiatrist. So they would, as you say, nominate themselves. The people that I see tend to have illnesses where they don't have insight. So things like schizophrenia, where they're hearing voices, where they have like paranoid delusions, they don't know they're unwell. And it's very rare for them to to self-refer. It's usually because they've been arrested, they're on trial. I'll see them on remand. Sometimes they get, upon my evidence, they'll be sort of section two a uh, an institute like Broadmoor instead of going to prison so it's very much against their own uh, it's against their own will I think it's fair to say yeah what led you down the psychiatry niche path I guess so growing up then you've obviously you've gone to uni and done college and all that stuff are there medical practitioners in the family how have you chosen that career path uh the honest truth is I was too kind of immature and not particularly driven enough as a kid to really know or care what I wanted to do uh, I was quite clever my parents pushed me a lot um, so I got A's in most of my exams got A's in my A-levels which which you need to get to medical school my dad sort of said 
I think you need to be a doctor because you're Indian and you're clever and that's, that's what you should do. <laughs> and uh, oddly, my parents are doctors, but a lot of their wider family, like their siblings are. So I wonder if that's part of it, if they feel, I don't know, left out. Uh, and I didn't have anything better to do. So I went to medical school, didn't really think about my future, sort of just bundled my way through medical through um, medical school, just about passed all my exams. I failed a few, had to reset them, just about got through without doing without resetting any years. Didn't really take it particularly seriously, if I'm being perfectly honest, until I did a placement in psychiatry. And that's the first time in my life where I actually felt interested in a topic. So I was on like a, a, a not not a, a ward for offenders, not secure ward, but general psychiatric ward. And I just met a whole range of people I'm quite used to it now, but back then it was just mind blowing, you know, people with psychotic disorders, people who, who like had these delusional beliefs that they're being followed by the FBI, that they're being watched, people with grandiose delusions who thought they had special powers, uh, people with severe post-traumatic stress disorder, people with eating disorders, just a massive mix of people with all these um, mental illnesses. And just speaking to them is fascinating, like hearing their beliefs and their backgrounds and their stories. So that's the reason that I chose psychiatry as a specialty. It's just, it's just interesting to get to know the individuals, you know, so of all the other subspecialties like general practice, surgery, you obviously, they do really good work and work they should be proud of. And it's very laudable, but it's not that interesting to me because you don't get to know the individual. You just get to know their problem. You know, if they've got a tumor, you cut out the tumor. If they've got diabetes, you treat the diabetes, but you don't know them as individuals. Whereas in psychiatry, you get to delve into their backgrounds. Is it fair to say that psychiatrists must be cut from a certain cloth then? Because it seems like being a good communicator is probably a vital skill. What are the sort of things do you need to have to thrive in that environment? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's probably, you probably call it the Marmite of medicine, right? So people tend to, other doctors or medical students tend to either hate it or love it. Uh, and I can understand why people hate it because it's frustrating. So you you asked about what, what kind of personality traits you need to have. The success rate in psychiatry, I think, is much lower than most other medical specialties. You know, if you're a good surgeon, you do your surgery and then the patient more often than not is cured probably for life. Whereas in psychiatry, especially the more severe kind of illnesses, you very rarely cure them. You just put them into remission. You try and prevent relapse. So to be specific, if, if you've got somebody with schizophrenia, for example, they're very rarely ever uh, cured for life. They will at some point relapse. They'll at some point have these symptoms again. So you have to have realistic expectations you're not treating somebody to get them better you're treating somebody to help them for as long as you can help them until they inevitably destabilize again so i suppose tolerance really you have to you have to be able to deal with a lot of social issues from drug and alcohol problems to to homelessness and then in, in my group the people that i deal with you have to deal with aggression you know when i was working in medium secure units myself and the staff would be threatened on a regular basis you'd have fights on the ward it's a bit like working in a prison you know you, you can't expect to work with that patient group and not have those kind of incidents um, and i suppose a different type of compassion and empathy so you're not just dealing with so let, let me put it another way i think it's fair to say that some doctors would not want to hear their patients come in with social problems on a daily basis. It would just, they'll just be fed up. They'll just be like, look, I can't sort these things out for you. I'm just here to deal with your diabetes or your asthma. Whereas psychiatrists, you have to be able to kind of accept all of the social issues that come with difficult patients. So when you're studying psychiatry, I imagine there's a lot written down in the books that you're looking at that will try and guide you. So when you're approached by someone with a certain illness, this is how, in theory, you should approach it. But I imagine the realities of that are far removed. Was there one point where you got a bit of a wake-up call and you thought, hang on, there's no books written about how to deal with this situation? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think 
So when I train, so within psychiatry, there's lots of different subspecialties, right? So you've got like child and adolescent, for example, which is ADHD, autism, liaison psychiatry, I mentioned before, suicide attempts, old age psychiatry, which is like dementia, those kind of things. So I tried all of these uh, during your training, you do these six months placements. So I did lots of different ones. And I think most of them fit to a degree with what you're talking about. So some sort of textbook archetype of what a patient, how a patient presents, what the treatments are and how you deal with it. I think working in forensic psychiatry is very different because diagnosing the patient is actually fairly easy. It's actually very basic. And knowing what the treatment should be is also fairly straightforward. But actually managing the individual in front of you can be quite difficult. So when you're working in secure units, again, as I said before, it's a bit like working in a prison. A lot of the patients actually come from prison. You have antisocial personalities. You have a lot of paranoia. You have people that are very damaged, that they themselves have been victims uh, of different forms of abuse, physical, sexual abuse by their parents, by family members. So they're difficult individuals. You know, that's almost by definition why they'd be in a secure unit. They've got a history of violence. So that you don't... Textbook doesn't really help, you know. When you're when you're when you've got somebody that's not listening to you, that doesn't have insight, that's refusing to take their medication, you can't read about how to deal with that. You have to have communication skills. You have to be persuasive. You have to know that it might take months or even years to actually get through to them and give them the right kind of treatment because they'll refuse it. So yeah, I think that's when I it's when I first started working with offenders and violent people that I realised that it's not it's not that you can't learn from textbooks. You can learn the basics. You can learn the fundamentals, but knowing the fundamentals isn't solving the problem it's being able to convince your patients to engage that solves the problem it mentions on your website about your role just sort of further to what you've said there that you assess treat and rehabilitate mentally disordered offenders and then you've sort of put in brackets what the tabloids might call in quotations the criminally insane which is a sensationalized term is it difficult to keep on top of the correct terminology because there's stuff like bipolar disorder right used to be manic depressive sort of when i was when i was growing up which has now changed and it seems when i'm working through my cases and i'll always look into the official nhs definition of stuff because a lot of what i think the terminology is is no longer correct how hard is it to keep on top of that and keep that fresh so you're always saying the correct thing (laughs) so I don't think it's that difficult because even though you do have different terminologies within mental, the the whole construct of mental illness, they don't come about that often. So they probably change, you know, every couple of years. So it's not that hard to to know what the right term is. I would, I'm skeptical. I think I'm I'm naturally skeptical in life and I don't just, you know, do what people say because people tell me that it's the right thing to do. And I'm skeptical about what the point is sometimes, you know, like, right, I'll give you a specific example you know, scope used to be called the spastic society, right? Mm-hmm. I, th- I think I think most people would agree, myself included, that you need to change that name because there are so many negative connotations with that word. There's a big push to call um, patient service users. So that's the correct term. You're not supposed to call them patients. I mean, everybody, doctors and nurses do call patients patients. And, you know, when, we talk, when we're in the office talking about patient, we call them a patient. But in front of them are all the official paperwork. We call them service users. Now, I am absolutely convinced that 95% of patient service users couldn't give a shit. Like They don't care what they're being called. It makes no difference to them. They're still hearing voices. They're still detained against their will. They're still forced medication. They still have committed horrific violence that they're ashamed of now that they're better. And changing their name from patients to service users doesn't make an iota of difference of the, of the kind of trauma that they've been through or the horrific situation they're in now. But I think there's this kind of almost too woke movement that thinks that people are going to be offended. Um, I suppose I, I feel the same thing as, uh, you know, I'm a person of color. 
I think that's the, the, the right term now, whereas we used to be called like BAME and before that it was like ethnic and now you can't say ethnic. And like, I don't give a shit. It, doesn't, it means absolutely nothing to me. So my point being is that there are these changes, but I'm not convinced that they're always there for the right reason. I think people, that there's kind of this work culture that thinks that people are getting offended, but on the front line, I don't think people are offended about things like that. That's what I think personally. Almost like taking offense by proxy, I guess. Absolutely. On, on yeah. other people's behalf. You mentioned something in there about people who have now recovered and sort of feeling remorse for what they've done. It's a pretty broad question, this, because I know there's so many different mental illnesses that you'll deal with on a regular basis. But do you ever have concerns that people are doing their best to manipulate their doctors in an attempt of trying to put across that they are now better when that might not be the case? Is that ever a concern? Do you sign someone off as better or how does that work? Yeah, kind of. So the I'll just give a really sort of brief summary of the, of the journey of, of one of my patients and then I'll answer your question about whether they're faking insight or not. So when we get somebody that comes through our system in a secure unit, uh, they, as I said, usually come from prison. Sometimes they come directly from, from like a trial from court. And there's, so the first thing you do is you deal with the mental illness. So you find the right medication. Sometimes it might take weeks to, or even months to kind of get the dosages right, side effects, et cetera, et cetera. Once they're better, then they start going through the rehabilitation process. So it's basically drilling down to why they offended. So the stuff that might be from their past, there might be trauma, might be drug and alcohol abuse. That's a huge like confounding factor. Uh, it might be anger issues. It might be like cognitive distortions that they have like misogyny for example might lead to domestic violence so you really and that's where the psychologists come in that's where they uh, go into their old they're the ones that have the time and the space to to really unravel all of that once you've done that then you start giving the individual a bit more freedom so they would have leave from a secure unit Uh, initially that would be escorted leave so they go with the nurse just to the local area once they've done that and, and they can show that they can stick to the boundaries that they're not you know trying to run off they're not trying to disappear and take drugs etc if they can do that then they get small periods of unescorted leave and once they've done that uh, that that would be maybe 15 minutes or half an hour at a time and as long as they come back in time they have like urine drug screen tests and, and they're breathalyzed etc cetera, etc cetera. and as long as their behavior is containable they get more and more leave that's structured so it has to be for a purpose you can't just you know go around hang around the town center you either go to the cinema go to the gym you know go to a cafe education is a huge one and then we rehabilitate them in terms of occupational therapy so we we try and hone them up with skills so that they can have like professions and jobs because there's no point getting somebody better and then just chucking them out into the world where they don't have any kind of skills um so we do all of those things plus we look at their behavior on the ward and they can be quite tense environments because as i was saying before a lot of people come from prison there's a bit of a hierarchy prison culture sometimes even a bit of you know um gang I wouldn't say gang warfare, but um, there's like beefs between certain groups of people. So to know if somebody's really ready to be discharged, to, to, to be signed off, to be to be released from hospital, you look at all of those things. And if somebody is struggling to uh, stick to the boundaries, so if they're losing their temper on the ward, if they're getting provoked by other patients, if they shout at nurses because they've been told no, if their leave is cancelled, if they test positive for drugs, et cetera, et cetera, then all those things are going to slow their discharge. Whereas if they manage to kind of jump through the hoops and stick to the, the boundaries on the ward after a prolonged period of time, depending on how dangerous they were. So obviously if you're talking about somebody's committed murder or even multiple murder, we observe them for years. Whereas if it's a relatively low level assault, uh, especially if it was in the context of a mental illness, which we've now cured, then you don't need to observe them for years. And, and you can't you can't justifiably use those resources. You have to you know free up beds, so you have to discharge them. 
so we, so my job as a as a, a forensic psychiatrist would be to make that decision of when we think they're safe <clears throat> now to go back to your other question can somebody fake it the answer is is yes like we, we can't mind read so all we can do is go on their behavior that we see in front of them but i would argue that if somebody is able to watch their boundaries watch their behavior contain their emotions not be aggressive for six months or even a year without any kind of incidents then they're capable of doing that whether they intend to go out and commit violence or not it's impossible to know for a fact but we know that they're well enough or that they're potentially well enough to keep themselves stable if they've got the right resources if they've got uh, you know access to medications uh, potentially a job lined up for them etc etc so that's the best we can do and that's the safest i think we can get them because what's the point in keeping them on if they can do that for a year then there's no point discharging them three or four years down the line because they're not any different at the end of that one year as they are four years down the line, if that makes sense. So you have to take the risk as a, as a psychiatrist. You have to make that call. Is there a particular disorder that you feel is... When I say the word dangerous, I don't mean physically, but I mean, is is the one where you almost take a deep breath in and go like, right, you know, it's quite a, a tricky one to to work around. Is there something that, like if someone said, what's the most difficult disorder to work with, with your service users, as you put it, what would that be, do you think? So I would, I would say it depends whether you're talking about the quantity or the quality of violence of risk, right? So you've heard of the, the term psychopathy, psychopaths, which is like a, a, an extreme version of antisocial personality disorder. So antisocial personality disorder is entrenched it's it's any personality disorder describes the makeup of an individual. So we've all got personality traits. Somebody with antisocial personality disorder is impulsive. They lack empathy. They don't care about the rights and wrongs of other people. Somebody who's a psychopath is all of those things, but they're also really charming, really manipulative, and they'll do anything to to kind of stab somebody in the back and and, and exploit other people, right? So somebody's got that diagnosis, then almost by definition, they're at a very high risk of offending again at some point in the future. And I have formally diagnosed people with psychopathy, like with, there is the psychopath test that we use in our in our units. So if somebody's got that diagnosis, then I know the chances are, even if they're presenting relatively well now, the risk of them reoffending, it's not guaranteed, but it's very, very high. But if you're talking about the, so that's the quantity of violence. If you're talking about the quality of violence, I would say schizophrenia is, I'll put it this way, in the most extreme cases that I've seen in my career, almost all of them have been because the patient's been psychotic. So psychotic is when you're step, stepping out of reality, when you're hearing voices, when you're believing things that aren't true. And schizophrenia is, is by far mo the most common diagnosis when that happens. Having said that, I should it's only fair to make the point that the vast majority of people with schizophrenia are not dangerous. It's just that ones who have schizophrenia and violent tendencies are the ones that I assess personally in my career and they they can commit like horrific levels of violence so you know I've, I've um, even though I can't name my patients I've, I've quite quite openly talked about one of my first cases of a young 18 year old girl I talk about in my book I give her a pseudonym of, J of Yasmin that's not her real name but she was completely she didn't have any kind of history of antisocial behavior in the past, never hurt anybody, never got into trouble, didn't have mental health issues. And then she became psychotic at 18 years old and she babys she was babysitting her three-year-old nephew and she smothered him and killed him, right? And it wasn't because she's an evil, angry, antisocial person. It's because she had these delusional beliefs in her head that the baby had, or the toddler had, um, like uh, had um, demons inside of him. So she believed that she was saving his life by smothering him to stop him going to the afterlife. So as you can see, that's very, very different from somebody who's a psychopath uh, because it's so unpredictable and the level of violence can be just completely extreme and, and unpredictable. You touched upon this 
psychopathy test, which a lot of people have kind of heard of in the ethers of the internet and social media, assuming this is confidential, right? But can you give me any kind of insight into what that kind of test consists of? Yeah. Uh, it's not that confidential, actually. So you can quite easily Google the uh, individual categories. So there's 20 categories, right? Okay. And everybody gets a score of zero, one, or two per category. Zero means not present. One means partially present or present to a degree. And two means very obviously this person's got it. So uh, I won't go through all 20 of them, but things like superficial charm, lacking any kind of remorse or regret. So not learning from your previous mistakes. So somebody who is commits a crime, is imprisoned, but then carries on committing a crime versus somebody who is caught and, and stops their behavior. Being sexually promiscuous would be another one. Living a parasitic lifestyle, so somebody who leeches off other people versus versus somebody that takes responsibility. So actually getting the criteria is fairly easy. What's difficult is knowing, is reliably, reliably testing that out. So when I, when I assess and diagnose that with somebody in one of my units, I don't just sit there and interview them because a psychopath is very likely to lie to you because it's not in their interest to, to be known as a psychopath. So what we do is we get collateral information. They're usually detained in our unit for years. So we get to speak to their family members, like ex-partners. We look through all of their medical notes from years ago. Often the people that we see have been in and out of, of hospital um, or prison or psychiatric units. So there's, there's like literally hundreds of pages of like objective evidence to go through. So that's how you do the test. Getting the getting the criteria is the easy bit. Is actually being able to go through the information to to reliably be able to score somebody. That's the time consuming bit. I was wondering that because, like you say, if they answered the questions in a, a closed manner, they're going to lie, right? But yeah. also, if someone answered those questions on someone's behalf they would probably also be biased the other way, wouldn't they? Yeah. So I suppose, but, but you wouldn't, so you wouldn't ask, so say if, uh, say I'm trying, so say one of the categories that I'm trying to determine is whether this person, you know, learned from previous mistakes. So did they change their behavior? If I was speaking to their partner, I wouldn't, I wouldn't just say, did they change their behavior? Because that's a very leading kind of question. I just ask them about their life together and lots of different in incidents. So I suppose what I'm saying, Stuart, is that they don't know what I'm looking for. I don't, I don't tell them the bit that I'm trying to extract. I just try and get as much information about the about the individual who's being assessed's previous behaviour. Right. That makes sense. So that leads me on to one part I've got here in my notes that I wanted to ask you. So I wanted to ask you the difference. We've mentioned a psychopath. I recently did a case where the perpetrator was diagnosed as a sociopath. Yeah. Now, Having looked up the symptoms of both disorders, they're quite similar. So can you explain the difference for me? Yeah. So what I would say is that psychopath is a proper clinical term, right? So I would diagnose it. There's a, a literal test that we use that I mentioned before. Sociopath is a bit of a vague term. So it doesn't, it's, it's if you ask 20 different forensic psychiatrists what a psychopath is, they'd all pretty much say the same thing. Whereas because sociopaths are used differently by different people, different people would say different things. So there's not, there's not a clear definition of a sociopath. To me, to make an analogy, it's a bit like the difference between being sad and being clinically depressed, right? So clinical depression is a diagnosis. We can say not only just feeling low in mood, but it's a lack of energy. It is you know, problems sleeping, problems with your appetite. If you have X number of symptoms, over two weeks, then you've got a diagnosis. If you don't, you don't. Uh, if you don't have that, then you don't have the diagnosis. Whereas being sad is is like a nebulous kind of term that encompasses some of that. And there's a big overlap and you don't have to be depressed to be sad. You could be, you know, 
bereavement you could be hung over i don't know there's lots of other reasons so to me psychopath and sociopath a bit like that psychopath is a clinical description of somebody with certain personality traits which sociopath is more about behavior than it is actual it's just a general term for behavior but to get specific it's generally accepted that psychopaths are a bit more cunning and conniving than sociopaths so sociopaths are not as good at fitting in and camouflaging themselves as psychopaths are so a psychopath could be um, could, could be a normal member of society. They they don't feel like a psychopath. They don't seem like a psychopath when you first meet them. But it's only after a, a length of time where they start manipulating you or they don't care about you or they're quite selfish or they discard you, even, even if you're supposedly a close, close friend or a family member. Whereas a sociopath wears their heart and their sleeves a bit more. They're a bit more obvious. So, you know, a sociopath might be like a drug dealer or, or a career criminal, whereas a psychopath can be those things, but could also equally be like a an upstanding member of society, might be a CEO or something like that. And also, I think sociopaths generally are a bit more emotionally reactive. So if you pissed off a psychopath, they wouldn't necessarily react at that time. They'd, they'd memorize it and they would wait to seek revenge on you when you're least expecting it. And it might be years down the line, whereas a sociopath can't really hold on to that. So a sociopath is going to react more at the, at the moment. There's another two here that I've put in a, a versus category, which again, general public, this is my opinion. So... I see a lot of instances of perpetrators love bombing their partners, right? So this is showering them with love and affection at the start of a relationship, which soon gets stripped back and quite the opposite happens. So they'll start insulting them, confuses their partner. They try to almost, it's a form of control, right? Which is, my understanding is that's common with narcissists. Yeah. And another disorder though is borderline personality disorder, which again seems to have a lot of common themes with narcissism. Yeah. Are, are they considered quite similar or are they far more different than I'm thinking. I think they're quite different. So so uh, so narcissists or narcissism as a term can be quite vague, but if we're talking about narcissistic personality disorder, so I suppose so I'm being quite pedantic here, but that's my job as a psychiatrist, right? So anybody can have features of narcissism. So if somebody's slightly up themselves or a bit grandiose, probably most YouTubers are slightly narcissistic because they want the attention, but that doesn't mean they've got a narcissistic personality disorder. It means to have that personality disorder. It means that those personality traits are so strong that they, they pretty much take over the individual's interactions and their functioning. Right. So for somebody to have narcissistic personality disorders, they're not just slightly grandiose, but they're really self-obsessed. They're really selfish. They constantly seek approval and praise from other people uh, and they lack empathy. They don't really care about anybody else. So uh, typically, if you're talking to somebody who has narcissistic personality disorder, they don't care about your problems. They're always complaining about what's going on in their life. And if you if you genuinely have a problem, you want to talk to your friend about it. If they've got this disorder, you'll find that the conversation quickly turns to them and their disorders. They don't give a shit about other people, basically, and they can't take any kind of criticism. Borderline's quite different in that borderline's more about emotional instability. So it's actually called emotionally unstable personality disorder in a different classification system. It's the same thing, two different, two different names for the same thing. So that is somebody who cannot take agitation. So they, they often have explosive relationships. So they're always arguing with their partners, boyfriends, girlfriends, mothers, parents they're, they're one of these people that intensely loves people but always like has arguments with people they're quite impulsive uh they often do th do impulsive things like like take drugs or they spend quite recklessly or they're quite promiscuous or they put themselves in, in quite risky situations 
Uh, and they don't, in terms of offending, in terms of the, when I see them in my practice, they don't, they're not career criminals like an antisocial person with antisocial personality disorder. It, they don't intend to to be a career criminal, but they lose their temper. So they get into fights, they argue with people, uh, and then they regret it afterwards. Whereas somebody with antisocial personality disorder or even narcissism doesn't really regret what they do. They might regret being caught, but they don't, the court is part of them to sort of show off all the time. So they're not quite the same thing, although there is a bit of an overlap, especially when it comes to the emotional kind of problems. The story will continue after these quick messages. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. And now, back to the story. What role does gender play in disorders such as this? Do you see some disorders more common, you know, with men, for example? Is does that ever play a role? Yeah, absolutely. So men by far, as I'm sure you know, commit more violence than women. So there's a lot more men that have antisocial personality disorder. There's more women that have borderline personality disorder. So they're more likely typically to to kind of self-harm or to create drama, uh, whereas an antisocial man doesn't want to create drama because they're a career criminal. They want to kind of get away with it and stay under the radar. So ethically, when you're dealing with people who've committed crimes, okay, violent crimes, I'm not just talking murder, but any sort of violent crime, and you're there and you're dealing with that person, how do you differentiate between you, the person who probably thinks what they've done is just the worst thing ever, and how can you do this? Why am I even entertaining this? Versus you, the professional, who has to put that to one side. How difficult is that? Yeah, that's a good question. Honestly, my answer to it is that I find it quite easy. I think that I'm maybe slightly psychopathic myself in that things don't emotionally affect me. I think it's fair to say that compared to the average person, like even watching like Game of Thrones, my wife, when there's a really violent scene, she'll like sort of shrink away and she can't watch it. Whereas it doesn't bother me at all. I can be sitting there eating my Cocoa Pops. I don't get emotionally moved. And I I generally don't think that's anything to do with my job because I think I've always been a bit like that. I, I don't think that it's I don't think I've gone hardened over time. I think I just happen to have found a career where that's like a helpful trait. So I'm not easily kind of moved or disgusted by crimes. That's number one. Number two, I mean, you kind of said it yourself. I'm very clear in my mind what my role is. So my role isn't to decide if somebody's guilty or not guilty and what their sentence should be. That's the role of the judge. My role is to give evidence to help the judge and my evidence has to be about, do they have a mental illness? Yes or no. Did they have symptoms at the time of their illness? Yes or no. If they had symptoms, did it affect their actions? So going back to that case, I was telling you about Yasmin, she clearly, and it wasn't just one thing she said once after the killing. It was something that that we assessed on an ongoing basis for, for months. And she was really sort of paranoid. She wasn't letting us, she wasn't trying to convince us that she had these beliefs about demons and stuff. In fact, it was the opposite. She was trying to kind of, she was very evasive and yeah, quite guarded. So it took a lot to actually elicit them. So my job is to see whether they've got symptoms that explain their actions. And the vast majority of the times they don't actually. So when I find a defense, a psychiatric defense, like not guilty by reason of insanity, it's only maybe 5% of the cases that I assess. 95% of the time they are responsible for their actions. I suppose my job is to gatekeep those who need to be transferred to hospital. So yeah, if I've got that in my mind, my job isn't to, to decide if somebody's good or bad. It's only to decide whether what their mental state was like at the time. Then that also helps. I think my sort of throughput of cases so I'm, I'm, i see maybe two or three cases a week and each one is like an eight or, eight or nine hour um job at writing the report up and all the evidence so i'm just constantly moving on to the next case 
Uh, and just my other interests, you know, from YouTubing to social media to documentaries and stuff like that. I'm always I'm just so busy that I don't get to kind of think, sit and think about the horrific things I see. Do you think if you had more free time, that could be, it could play more of a factor on you, on your mind? I honestly don't know, because at times where I have had free times, occasionally I, my cases dry up for like a week or two, then I have, I wouldn't say mental health problems, but I find myself very impatient and I need to be constantly stimulated. So I'm always looking for something to do. You know, I've got a wife and kids, but aside from that, like, I don't know, from playing chess to hanging out with my mates or whatever it is, exercising. So I do definitely feel an impatience or, or a lack or something's missing in my life when I don't, when I'm not busy, but I wouldn't say that I particularly think about my cases. It sounds like you're a run-of-the-mill creative to me. <laughs> like, I'm quite similar. I don't do as much as you, but I, I'll just do anything that's whether it's creating something, building something, trying to draw something, anything just to fill the time. <laughs> do you do you feel like when you have gaps in your week and you don't have anything to fill it with, do you feel like this impatience or this frenetic energy? I just feel guilty, especially when I'm doing stuff like this. I think let's let's say I'm, pl- I'm playing the last of us part one okay on on ps4 i played it years ago i'm playing it again and i almost feel like i have to justify giving myself an hour to play a game when I could be researching a case or writing or editing a video you know i kind of feel guilty for that which i don't know if yeah, that's yeah. what other people do but any free but I'm, I'm managing it i'm starting to manage it and just say no play the fucking game <laughs> <laughs> I suppose it's like a shift in your thinking, isn't it? Uh, not just you, but people in your situation and my situation as well. It, thinking of it as a treat or a reward that you deserve as opposed to thinking of it as wasting time. Yeah, absolutely. We'll come on to the, our role as, a, as an expert witness, right? Because you were talking earlier about the manslaughter cases. I think you said about 5% or something based on after you've put your sort of case across, I guess. I was going to ask you that, so you kind of answered it as how many go to manslaughter. But talk me through being an expert witness. So just take me through the, the initial contact about a case. You get contacted by, I assume, one side of the case, or is it the Crown that contacts you? What sort of happens from that initial contact until appearing in court? Sure. So yeah, the vast majority of the cases that, that myself and any expert witnesses take on is for the defence, simply because the defence, so that the team of the perpetrator, the legal team, get to go first. And the prosecution only go if... The ev- if they don't agree with the evidence. And so I think a common misunderstanding or a misconception is that an expert witness such as myself, we have to be absolutely neutral. So it doesn't matter which side instructs us, we have to tell the honest, objective truth. Uh, and I think that most of us do. I have certainly have come across cases where I where I think the expert is biased because the, you get paid by your, the defence team, right? So if you write a report that's favourable, then the chances are they're going to re-instruct you and that's you know, how you make a living which is not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be completely objective and honest. So all those things I was talking about before, whether they have mental illness, whether it affects their responsibility. But anyway, to go back to your question, so I'll be usually be sent an email. I'd say 80, 85% of the time it's for the defence, about 15% of the time it's the prosecution because somebody else, has, another psychiatrist has already done a defence report and the prosecution disagrees that so they want me to examine the defendant, in prison, usually in prison, and then write my own prosecution report. So the first thing I do is usually I get sent the case papers. So that will be an overview of what the crime was, witness statement, maybe CCTV footage, the 
statements of the police interviews transcripts so usually the patients the the uh, defendants arrested within like a day or two usually unless they've gone on the run and then so i can see like line for line what was said the reason that's important is because if they're claiming that they've got a mental illness if they're claiming that they were hearing voices but there's no evidence of that in in all of those things that's talking about in all the evidence all the witness statements etc then my bullshit radar's on high alert then i think that they might be faking it uh, and then once I've got all the information, I'll see that person one-to-one. I have to say, since the since COVID pandemic, a lot of my assessments are now online, whereas before I'd have to literally go into prison two or three times a week, uh, which in itself was a massive ball ache, like trying to get into a prison. It's like an airport. It's like, you know, hours sitting in various waiting rooms. Um, and then do my assessments. Usually they cooperate because they know that I'm writing a report that's potentially going to um, shed them in a certain light in front of the judge. So the vast majority of the times they're on their best behavior, even if they're, you know, horrible and social people, they tend to cooperate. The exception being when they, when they're really psychotic. So they're so mentally unwell that they, they literally don't believe that I am who I say I am. They're that paranoid, but that's, that's quite rare. Uh, and then I kind of, I look at all the evidence and I kind of, I extract what I think is evidence that says they do or they don't have a mental illness. Sometimes it's a bit of both. So I'm very clear in working in explaining my working out. So these are the factors that suggest yes. These are the factors that suggest no. Overall, this is the spectrum of reasonable opinions. And this is where my opinion lands on the spectrum. And then I submit a court report. They're usually really, really lengthy and detailed, like 40 or 50 pages long, typically. And then the court looks at it. And if they accept my evidence, then I don't get called in. So I actually get called in quite infrequently, probably about, again, I'd say about 5% of my cases. So I only actually give evidence in court about two or three times a year, I'd say, maybe a bit more than that. And that I think is because I always show my working. So because there's nothing that they can question me about, because I, I, unlike some experts, I'm very clear of what I'm sure about and what I'm not sure about as well. And things that I'm, and if there's something I'm unsure about, I, I literally explain why I can't give an opinion. And because my reports are so thorough, it's very rare that the court needs to cross-examine me because there's nothing they can't like, you know, the barrister's job is to try and trip trip up my opinion. That's basically why they're there, but I don't give them any, any ammo to do that with. So yeah, so that's basically it. So a lot of it's actually done via email online nowadays. How far out from the trial are you contacted? So from point of arrest, they're in now a remand prison and the trial's got a date. What, what sort of time period are you called? So it's usually within the first couple of months because the solicitors, if they're any good, if if there is a mental health issue and if they think that their defendant has a potential psychiatric defence, they'll usually be able to tell within the first times of meeting, uh, meeting their defendant. So it's pretty early on within the first few months. But as I'm sure you know, murder trials themselves can go on for a really long time. So even though I'm contacted within, say, two months, they might say, we don't want your report for another six months because we want it to be as up to date as possible in case the person's mental health improves or deteriorates in prison. And sometimes I even assess them. And then the trial, especially in a murder trial, it's so slow that they'll say, even though you assessed them a year ago, it's been another year, the trial's going to be in three months. Can you reassess them because they've taken medication since you've last seen them or they haven't taken medication, they seem a lot worse. So in those kind of cases, I might have to go and reassess them a couple of times. And do you have a template or a formula for these reports or do you just start with a blank page and how do you structure it, I guess, is my question. Yeah, well, all psychiatric assessments have like a basic structure. So you ask about, yeah, I won't go through it all because it get a bit boring, but like family history. Do you have psychiatric illnesses in the family? Then a bit about their background, their experiences, whether they're bullied at school, then psychiatric history, drug and alcohol use. So there are def- there is definitely a template. Uh, but to be perfectly honest with you, I can tell within the first sort of 10 minutes which bits are actually relevant. 
but to make a good report, to make a thorough report, you have to kind of, you have to examine everything, you know, it's not that dissimilar, I suppose, if you, if you go into hospital and, and you've got like chest pain, then a good doctor will examine, quickly examine all of you, but they'll focus on the, on the, like the cardiac bit, because if you've got the patient in front of you, you might as well do a thorough exam. So it's a bit similar to that. I would look in all of their background history and I'll look at all their aspects of mental health, but I know fairly quickly whether I think they've got a mental illness or not. So that's the bit that I focus in on. How did you feel the first time you were called into court? I think the first time I called into court was a bit of an anticlimax because you end up sitting around waiting. And especially if it's not a particularly controversial case, the questions are actually fairly easy. So the first maybe two or three times, it was nothing to write home about. It wasn't particularly exciting. I think the first time that I actually felt nervous was back to that case that I keep talking about, Yasmin, because that was a murder trial and that was in the Old Bailey. The potential outcome for her is... Uh, really important so she could have got a life sentence that's what the prosecution were were um were pleading for and i on my evidence she ended up being transferred to a psychiatric unit so that's just just knowing that my evidence would have such an impact on her life it was quite daunting yeah it's quite scary probably quite a good feeling though knowing that so although you've got to present the information objectively deep down you probably knew that was the right outcome i imagine yeah 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 and it takes a bit of getting used to, but the barrister's job, the opposition barrister's job is to try and and discredit you. That's basically what they have to do. They have to make the jury or the judge doubt your evidence. So they purposely try and get you to contradict yourself by asking you kind of leading questions. And the first couple of times, it's quite hard not to take it personally because it feels like you're being, especially because it's in a public forum and it all looks so serious, especially in the old Bailey, everyone's wearing, you know, a wig and there's so much Latin and all that, all that stuff. So the first first couple of times it is very intimidating but when you get used to it and you know that it's not personal they're just trying to do that so don't get flustered don't get angry don't raise your voice just stick to your guns and and say if you don't know something say that you don't know it and I think I'm quite good at that I've seen some other expert witnesses some other forensic psychiatrists who get very flustered Uh, I've seen people who are quite renowned in my field or the professors that write the textbooks that I've read I've seen at least one or two of them I think because if I'm being honest they're a little bit arrogant so they don't like being challenged or they don't like they can't admit that they're wrong or they don't know something. Whereas I'm very open to admitting what I do know and I don't know because my point isn't to win the argument. My purpose is to inform the court of what it doesn't understand about mental illness. Does anyone coach you or prep you before going in? Like, would you meet with the defence team if that's who you're representing? And they would say, they might ask you this, don't do this. Or do you get any coaching tips? Kind of, not by the defence team, but when, so there's different kind of levels of, of, um, of psychiatrists as junior doctors like house officers registrars and i'm a consultant now so when i was a registrar which is like a middle grade my consultants would some of the good ones would let me watch them give evidence in court and then like might be able to practice in a, in a one-to-one tuition session but it's very much consultant-led so i was lucky enough to have a few good consultants that took the time to do that whereas i know some of my peers they didn't so they never got any kind of training for giving evidence they just literally got flung in at the deep end oh that's good so talking about nerves You've appeared in courtrooms on murder trials, and you also regularly appear on live TV, which do you find more daunting? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'd have to say live TV is definitely, by uh, many factors, a lot more terrifying than giving evidence in court. Because in the evidence in court, first of all, there's there's no time pressure, number one. Number two, I've already written a really detailed report and because I know I'm given evidence, I've obviously read, reread my report several times, you know, a couple of weeks before, even on that morning. So I'm really, 
I know exactly what's co- well I, actually that's not true I was going to say I know what questions are coming I don't know what questions are coming but I know what topic is going to be on and I know what I know and I can say I don't know if they try and trip me up or if they try and ask me something that's outside of my expertise and sometimes barristers do that on purpose so they know that I'm a psychiatrist I don't know enough about you know like neurology so if somebody's got like these weird seizures for example they'll intentionally ask me questions about that on the witness stand because they want me to to overstep my boundaries and then they'll be like but hang on how can you ask this question if you're a psychiatrist not a neurologist but i know that so if they say blah 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 if they ask me a question i'll say i'm sorry i don't know that's out of my expertise you can't do that on live tv because nobody gives a shit about your expertise they just want an answer <laughs> right so and you just look like a bit of an idiot if somebody gets you on and asks you a question and you say i don't know so you have to make it up on the spot basically and even though the producers kind of tell you which questions they're going to ask you they're not always correct and sometimes the presenter kind of goes off tangent a little bit or sometimes they ask you a really broad question and there's such time pressure on tv so like this morning i've been on a few times and i know that I can only be there for seven minutes and then they'll ask you i think dermot o'leary once asked me something like what goes on in the mind of a murderer that was one of his questions <laughs> like two minutes left <laughs> so how the fuck do you answer that do you know what i mean so I, I even said i said that's a very broad question uh i'm not sure i could fully answer that but here are my top three things and blah 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 so you can but so to do that on the spot whilst knowing it's all recorded live and your friends and family are watching. And if I stutter or lose my words, it can be embarrassing. It's a lot more pressure, I think. It's like answering it like a politician, I guess. I take, I take your question on point, but I'll answer a different question <laughs> for the sake of time. What do you think about members of the public being like these armchair detectives? So you see a lot of it on TikTok. You'll see, and the most recent one is probably the Nicola Bully case, right? So there was hundreds of videos on social media platforms, people guessing what happened people accusing a husband of doing something nefarious almost getting in the way of the police's investigation what's your opinion on people that like to offer such opinions online yeah i suppose the easy answer would be to, would be for me to say you know leave it up to the professionals i've got my youtube channel and I, and I want people to watch my channel and not to watch anybody else's <laughs> but in reality i think anybody is allowed to make any content i don't have a problem with that but i think that it's really important to say at the top what your expertise is and isn't so i've got have you heard of dr grande the youtuber rings a bell yeah, he's he's very popular. He's got, I, I don't know how many subscribers now, but I think it's well over a million. And I've kind of got beef. I, I'm sure he couldn't give a shit about it. It probably doesn't even know it exists, but I've made a couple of diss videos about his videos because he doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, right. And he's not a psychologist or psychiatrist. He's a PhD in education or something, but he calls himself Dr. Grande. He makes videos regularly about all these true crime things that have come on. And the stuff that he says is either factually incorrect, so... I've done this video about how he called Chris Watts. You know the case of Chris Watts, the guy yeah, who killed him? Yeah, 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 awful case. Yeah, absolutely horrific case. He calls Chris Watts a psychopath, whereas I absolutely don't think Chris Watts is a psychopath. I think he lacks empathy, but he's not particularly charming. He's not manipulative. He's not grandiose. He's not blah, blah, blah. So my point is, is that I have issue with people who promote themselves or present themselves as experts, but say things that are incorrect. That pisses me off because I am an expert and I... You know, I spent years training and I'm on, I'm on the front line. So that annoys me. But I think it's fair if other, any, anybody can have an opinion as long as they say they're not an expert. So Dr. Grande calls himself Dr. Grande, talks about these things. And I, and I think people assume that he's a psychiatrist or a psychologist. If he just said at the top, these are my opinions, but by the way, I don't work in this line. This is just what I think. I would have no problem with it. So that's how I feel about other, other sort of armchair commentators. Anyone's allowed an opinion, but they should say whether or not it's a professional opinion. I'm just looking here. I've, I typed uh, Dr. Grande in, in Google here. Todd Grande, right? Yeah. And it's uh, the, the first video link is one of yours. And it's called, is Dr. Grande wrong about Chris Watts? There you go. 
I've not heard of him Googling him. I've not, I was thinking of someone else. I think I, I was thinking of the guy that's a GP on there. I don't know his name, but yeah, I've not heard of that. Is he American, that guy? Uh, yes, he is, yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. What's your opinion on uh, on armchair experts? Well, it's strange, right, because I'm a podcaster. So anyone that hasn't listened to my show would say, well, you're doing exactly what you're accusing people of. But I like to think mine's a little bit different because I only report I call it objective, but I'm still subject to what resources I can find. I don't give my opinions on stuff. I prefer my listeners to come up with their own opinions. First of all, it increases engagement because I like engaging with the audience. But second of all, it's not for me to say. I'm not here to call people assholes or, you know, what a prick he did this or that person deserved this or whatever. It's not up to me to say that. It is what it is. This is what happened. What you think about it is what you think about it. I do think that, so going back to whether somebody needs to be qualified or, or an, an expert, I think that some, a lot of true crime podcasts are exceptionally good at getting information that's not easy to find. So I have a level of respect for that because they do, they put in the time, they do the research to find not just stuff that you could you know look on Wikipedia, but like really old police files or, you know, and come up with theories. And that's absolutely fine. I don't have a problem with that. In fact, I go one step further. I say, you know, I'm a YouTuber myself. I, I do, do not have the time to spend like, you know, a day on a case, I just can't do it. So they're probably going to find out, in fact, not probably, they're definitely going to find out more helpful information than I can logistically do. So I don't have a problem with that bit. It's when you, when they make psychiatric diagnoses and they're wrong, that it kind of, yeah, frustrates me. Yeah. So your YouTube channel is Psych for Sore Minds. That's what it is, right? Play on words there. Clever. 55,000 followers. I rate that. Beats my... uh... (laughs) just over 3.9 and your book as well. So you've got a book out called in two minds, another good play on words there. I like it. So this was published hardback March 10th, 2022 paperback a year later, 2023. And I was looking on Amazon, do you know, it's on, it's quite high in some categories. Did you know? No, I didn't know that. This is for the paperback. So it's number five in forensic medicine. Okay. Number nine in psychology and violence. These are all categories I didn't know existed. And number 10 in doctor-patient relations. So that's pretty okay. cool. You do break the book down into three categories, sections, categories, whatever you want to call them. So you've got secure hospitals, prisons, and courtrooms. I just wanted to know what the, the logic was behind formatting it that way. Before I answer the question, I'm just going to say something you might find interesting. So when I started, it took me about 18 months to write the book. And when I started writing the book, there was not one other book that existed by a forensic psychiatrist. Uh, there were a couple by forensic psychologists, but not psychiatrists. When I started writing it, by the time I finished, mine was either the third or fourth to be published. So that is so frustrating for me because like, <laughs> I thought I'd like quarter the market and then, yeah. But anyway, sorry, what was your question? I've forgotten. Just about splitting it into oh, three yeah, categories. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's just simply because of the the way that my career went. So when I first qualified as a, as a consultant way back in 2014, I think it was, uh, I initially worked in a secure unit, medium secure unit for about three, four years. Then I worked in a prison for about the same amount of time. And since then I've been working as an expert witness. So it's just, and it's kind of almost follows the career trajectory, uh, the, the trajectory of an individual that goes through the system just by coincidence. So that's why I made it into those three categories. Cool. There's one chapter, chapter six called mad or bad. So that leads to the most obvious question that most people would want me to ask you. What's your stance on nature versus nurture? Okay. Uh, so mad and bad is slightly different from nature versus nurture. So I'll, I'll, I'll differentiate the nature versus nurture first, and then I'll do the mad or bad. So nature versus nurture is 
for for your um, listeners, nature is like inherent personality traits that might lead to violence, right? So the obvious ones would be impulsivity, uh, lack of empathy. Uh, so pretty much everything I was describing earlier about antisocial personality disorder. And nurture is about the environment. So being exposed to violence from a young age, witnessing domestic violence, uh, living in poor criminogenic areas, being surrounded by gang peers, a drug and alcohol I keep talking about because it's just so rife amongst my uh, patient cohort. So the accepted wisdom nowadays that is it's, it's a bit of both, which I would agree with. I would say personally, from my experience, nature is more and more, I was going to say more important, important is not the right word, is more malleable than nurture because nurture is about changing somebody's internal personality. And you can do that through years of therapy, but it is very slow and it's not particularly effective, but you can take away environmental issues. So you can remove somebody from a criminogenic area. You can help them work through the trauma that makes them kind of angry. You can obviously give them drug and alcohol rehab. You can set them up for like using occupational therapy. You can give them some sort of career to potentially go into or a job to go into after they've left the secure units or even after they've left prison. So I suppose I personally am much more interested in nurture than I am in nature because it is what I can tangibly see and what I can tangibly change. I say me, but I don't just mean me. I mean, it's the whole team of people in the hospital, the nurses, the psychologists, but it's, it's something that we as a system can tackle and change. So I would emphasize nurture, although in reality, I know it's a bit of both. So go on to the, the bad versus mad or bad, sorry, then the slight, the difference of opinion. Yeah, yeah. So that's, there's, there's a big overlap in nature and nurture, but it's not quite the same thing. So I, uh, mad versus bad obviously is a, is a is a is a layman kind of informal term i suppose if i was putting it into forensic psychiatry terms i would say and we've touched on this before personality disorder versus mental illness so a personality disorder is entrenched and intrinsic so everybody has personality traits all those things that i was mentioning before like you know emotional instability lack of empathy impulsivity lack of fear i'd add to that so all these things uh, make it more likely that somebody is going to commit violence. And I would say that that is bad because that's intrinsic to you. You know what you're doing, but you have these personality traits that make you act in a certain way or make make certain decisions that lead towards crime. Whereas mad would be the psychotic kind of illnesses. So that's like, again, keep mentioning Yasmin, somebody who has these beliefs that lead them to commit violence because they're not in control of what they're doing. Or I, I mentioned hearing voices. That's another common presentation I see. So, you know, derogatory voices or command hallucinations telling you to attack people. If you've got something like schizophrenia, that is completely different because that is, you know, I wouldn't use the term mad, but it's it's like psychotic. So it's it's out of touch of reality. So my patients tend to fit. It's like a spectrum. And on one side, you have personality disorders, which is bad. And on one side, you have psychotic disorders, which is mad. It's relatively straightforward if they're one or the other, but often my patients have a little bit of both, which makes it quite difficult to treat them. Okay. A final question here. I've had you for about an hour, so we'll uh, we'll discuss this final one before we summarise. I'm currently researching a case where a 16-year-old brutally murdered a 12-year-old girl. Now, at the time, the perpetrator wasn't named when he was first arrested, but when he was sentenced, he ended up being found guilty of manslaughter, diminished responsibility. And at the time, his defence team put forward an application to the judge for him not to be named in newspapers, which the judge overruled and said he doesn't doesn't deem it worth doing in this case. I just want to know your opinion on youth offenders. I don't know how much you deal with youth offenders, but on keeping them anonymous when they commit such brutal crimes and the difference between them being treated as kids versus being treated as adults, 
Do you think anonymity in a case such as that would have been the right thing to do? Or should kids be given that sort of leeway, I guess? Yeah. So I suppose my answer to be to that would be what is the what is your intention or what is one's intention? Just like you've got nature nurture, mad bad, you've got, I think punishment and you've got rehabilitation right so if you look at it through a punishment lens which is absolutely reasonable you know i'm a parent myself as i know you are if i had a child that was hurt or injured or even killed i would want the perpetrator to be punished so in in that way through that lens i would want them to be named i wouldn't want them to get away with it probably with the knowledge that there might be some vigilante attacks or if not that then uh at the very least their their crime or their identity will probably follow them after they've been released if you're looking at it, if I'm putting on my forensic psychiatry hat, which is just about rehabilitation and trying to get somebody better, when I say better, I mean safe to be released in society one day. I'm not talking about months. It's probably years, maybe even decades down the line. Then it doesn't help to have their identity leaked because for the same reasons, it's going to follow them around. So I suppose I'm, I'm sidestepping your question. It depends whether you're asking me as a, as a member of society parent or if you're asking me as a forensic psychiatrist. If I'm a forensic psychiatrist, I would say that I would advocate for not releasing the identity simply because it won't help their rehabilitation in the long term. To answer your question about criminal responsibility, I mean, as, as you know, the, the age of responsibility is 14 in the UK. So technically anybody is deemed to have known what they were doing if they were above the age of 14, unless they have something like a mental illness, but that's a whole different kettle of fish. So I suppose a 16-year-old does, I think, know the consequences of their actions. So they should be tried as such, I think. So my final question, I know I said that before, but this is my final, final question. Promise. <laughs> it's all good. What advice would you give someone who wants to not follow in your footsteps directly, but follow the, the same career path as you, become a consultant forensic psychiatrist, or just enter the field of forensic psychiatry? What advice would you give? First of all, well, to be a forensic psychiatrist as opposed to a psychologist, obviously you have to you have to do a medical degree. So you have to go through all, do all of medicine. You have to do a couple of years uh, of general medicine for general surgery before you're allowed to subspecialize. But in terms of advice, first of all, try and do as much forensics as you can. That might sound obvious, but actually because, uh, as you'd imagine, of all the psychiatric wards in the UK, only a very small proportion of them uh, actually are forensic units. So I don't know the exact proportion, but something like, you know, one in 20 psychiatric wards are locked wards. 19 of them aren't because there's so many more people who are psychiatrically unwell who haven't committed violence than there are. So you need to go on a training scheme. You get to like choose which training scheme you go to and you apply to them. A bit like applying to university. So, you know, I chose London. There's and even within London, there's like North, South, East, West. So you need to find a training scheme that you know has good forensic coverage. So that is linked to somewhere like Broadmoor, for example, linked to prisons. Uh, and you need to to get on a six-month forensic placement. Forensics is relatively competitive, so you need to make a good impression with the consultants there so they remember you when you reapply as a registrar. And the other thing is just to get as much experience as you can. So especially if it's quite a busy job, it's really easy to do the minimum amount just to get through your six month placement. But you need to put in the hours outside of that. So you need to volunteer, request, ask to uh, accompany the consultants into prison, into court, watch them giving evidence, all of those things. Firstly, because you need to know whether it's for you or not, because it might sound exciting on paper, but the reality of, of dealing with criminals every day can wear some people down and it's, it's not for everybody. You know, if you if you don't have a certain disposition that you can deal with reading about these horrific crimes and potentially be shouted at within these secure units. If you can't handle that on a day-to-day -day basis, then your life's going to be miserable <laughs> to do what I do. So make sure that it's for you, number one. And number two, uh, having that experience gives you the competitive edge in when you're later on applying. 
Well, I appreciate you coming on, Shahom. And for those who want to read your book, In Two Minds, I'll put a little link in the description. You've also got drdasmedia.com. People can reach you on there. You're also pretty active on the socials, right? So you've got Psych for Soul Minds, YouTube, Instagram. You're on all that good stuff, right? All of it, yeah. Cool. So I'll put all the necessary links in the description. Thanks for your time. Hope you all enjoyed that. And if you're going to become or try and become a forensic psychiatrist, I hope that this uh, episode was helpful. And uh, I'll see you all next time.